Well, church, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus as we continue our summer series in this wonderful and powerful book that has been extremely helpful to me. I hope it has been for you. Uh, This morning, we will be considering three chapters, Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 21 and chapter 22. And so I think you will find yourself helped this morning to have God's Word open in your lap. We will be repeatedly returning to it throughout this message, as is our custom. And so please find your way to Leviticus 17. That's page 96 in the Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. And so I will begin by reading from Leviticus 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood. And that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful once again for your word. And we are immediately confronted, I think even as we read this passage, what we are, seem to be confronted quite often with the book of Leviticus, that these commands, these injunctions, seem remote and obscure to us, and yet we understand them to be your very word. So we ask you to help us today. Leviticus is not an easy book. It is a wonderful book, a delightful book, and yet it is challenging to us. So please, in your grace to us, out of our desire to learn this word, that we might know our God better and more faithfully follow him, come and help us. In particular, I pray that you would help me as I as I feel somewhat overwhelmed with the task in front of me. I help this your people to have open hearts to your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps a couple weeks ago you saw what I saw on television. It was rather an interesting ceremony when the USS Gerald Ford was commissioned into the United States Naval Fleet. The newest aircraft carrier, a $13 billion aircraft carrier, I trust perhaps the most advanced piece of military might that man has perhaps ever created. 
I was thinking about the Gerald Ford as I was watching all the dignitaries and the president speak at her commissioning about another ship, the USS New York, which was christened about 10 years ago, on March 1st, 2008. What's unique about the New York was that the bow stem of that ship was made from recovered steel from the World Trade Center. So the idea is that the memories of that fateful day on 9-11 and those who sacrificed their life in aid of others will lead that ship wherever she sails. The motto of the USS New York is strength forged through sacrifice, never forget. One Navy captain who was actually observing the construction of this ship watched as the mangled steel from the World Trade Center was melted down and then poured into its molds. He observed, I quote him, those big, rough steel workers treated it with total reverence. Reverence seems to be rare these days, doesn't it? At least it does to me. There seems to be very little today that we revere in our culture, very little that we venerate. The Lord, of course, has taught us and is teaching us, as He taught His people thousands of years ago, from the the truths contained in the book of Leviticus, that He is to be venerated. That His presence is to be revered amongst His people. In fact, look over in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 30. You see a a, a statement that we actually repeated some uh, often in Leviticus, when the, God says there, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And God says you are to revere my presence and my dwelling in your midst. And of course, this is not simply an old covenant principle. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, okay, this is how you pray. You pray our Father who is in heaven. And then what's the first thing we ask for? We say, hallowed be your name. The first thing we are to pray is we are to say, God, let your name be revered. Even when God gave the commandments to Moses on Sinai, it is the third commandment, which God in effect says, you just don't throw around my name. You treat it with the reverence that it is due. You honor it and you esteem it. In Psalm chapter 50, for instance, God lists the sins of the people of Israel. And in verse 21, he says, you thought I was just like you you. One of their sins was to treat God like we treat each other. He is to be revered. The opposite of reverence is to dishonor, or as Leviticus talks about frequently, to profane. God has a lot to talk about his name being profaned. In chapter 19 and verse 12, for instance, he says, when you lie, you profane me. In chapter 21, verse 6, he says, When the priest practiced pagan practice, you profane me. In chapter 22, verse 2, he says, When you give offerings not according to the law in which I have given, you profane me. In fact, I think there's a great summary verse in chapter 22. Turn there for a moment, if you will. Verse 31. Scripture says here, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Verse 32. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. He says, instead of profaning me, you need to treat me with honor. You need to acknowledge me as the holy God that I am. And that's, I think, one of the the helps that Leviticus, Leviticus is providing for us is that we learn over and over again the holiness of our God. And please understand, when we talk about God's holiness, do not think cranky or unpleasant or judgmental. The holiness of God is beautiful. God is beautiful and good and true and faithful and generous and patient and kind and loving. And one of my goals as we begin the second section, the second half, if you will, of the book of Leviticus is to show you the beauty of a holy life that reflects a holy God. It's my goal because beginning in chapter 17 all the way through the end of Leviticus through chapter 27 is what scholars have called the holiness code. 
and it's really instructions on how we should live. And it may be helpful to be able to kind of picture this in your mind that the first half of the book of Leviticus, really from chapters 1 through chapter 16, answer this question that we've talked a lot about. How can sinful man live with a holy king? Remember the end of the book of Exodus and the tabernacle's been constructed and then God comes in his glory and resides in the tabernacle and it sends Moses running away. Even Moses, who spoke to God, had to run away from the glory of God. And then Leviticus begins, and it's addressing this question, okay, now that God is residing in your camp, how do you live as sinful man with this holy king? We saw from chapters 1 through 16, the answer is a bloody knife and a burning altar, right? It's sacrifices and priests and ritual purity and seeking God's atonement. That's what the first half of the book of Leviticus seeks to show us. Now we come to the second half of Leviticus and it asks a different question or answers a different question. The question, the second half of Leviticus is how can we live for this holy king? Not how can we live with him, but how can we live for him? How can we live on mission? And what we learn is that these uh, people of Israel who have been saved by God, he's entered into a covenant with them, are to live in such a way that they reflect his character. This, by the way, is not simply an old covenant principle. In the new covenant, we are to live in such a way that reflects God's character. How many times have we heard, forgive as you have been forgiven, serve as you have been, have, as God has served you, and on and on we hear this. Jesus even said, you know, that great verse in John 13, verse 35, right? By this, all men will know you are my disciples. Why? How you Love one another. God says, I want you to live like me. I want you to reflect my character. And so understand, my brothers and sisters, holiness, your holiness, our holiness, is the goal of, Christ, of the Christian life. Even Jesus, when he ascended to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, and gave that great commission, did he not say, go and make disciples? Right? That's our marching orders. How do we do that? We do the two things. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them all that I've commanded? No, he didn't say that. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Go make disciples who obey me, who live like me, who bear my image. We're to be holy like God. That doesn't mean elitist. That doesn't mean judgmental. That means people who live lives that bear God's image. What he's simply doing is he's restoring the original creation the the principle of creation, that he makes us in his image. We're to reflect God to a watching world. And Leviticus, I think, will be very helpful for us. How to live a holy life. And so in chapters 18 and chapters 20, we will discover next week, God willing, God's sexual ethic. It's really holiness and sex. What does that look like? In chapter 19, we'll, we'll talk about holiness and love. What does it look like to love like God? Today, we're going to consider holiness and leadership and holiness and worship in chapters 21, 22, and chapter 17. It's really today, to be honest, it's two sermons. So it's like a two-for-one day, okay? I'm feeling generous, and so I'm going to give you two sermons. The first, holiness and leadership. We're going to start in chapters 21 and 22 today, and then we're going to go uh, back to chapter 17 and talk about holiness and worship. And the reason I flipped them is I simply just want to end uh, this morning talking to you about our wor- how our worship is to be holy. So consider, first of all, holiness and leadership. Find your way to chapter 21. And you'll notice in verse 1, the scripture says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, Now look over in chapter 22 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they may abstain from holy the holy things, etc. You see, both of these chapters are written to priests. Now we don't have priests anymore. We don't need priests. We don't need sacrifices. We don't have a temple. God saw that the temple was destroyed, right? We don't have this kind of ritualistic system. But the principles, I think there's lasting truths here in this chapter, and I think particularly relevant for those who lead God's people. That What we're going to discover is that leaders are to be particularly holy. And I don't know if, you, if you've noticed, we're re- many of us are reading through the Bible this year as a church, and some of us are on schedule, some of us are not. That's okay, just keep going. 
It's okay if it takes you two years. Just keep pushing on. But one of the things I've noticed, especially in the historical books, is that it seems there is a, an, a, a relationship between the holiness of God's people and the holiness of its leaders. And what I mean by that is whenever God's people, when, excuse me, whenever God's leaders are devoted to God, it seems like the people are devoted to God. And whenever the, people, uh, the leaders are not devoted to God, the people are not devoted to God. In fact, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of a single time in the history of the people of God when the, when the people, the nation, was devoted and their leaders were not. It seems like God has established that people, his people, will follow leaders. If God's people are to be holy and devoted to him, it will happen, at least in part, by making sure there are holy leaders who are guiding them and directing them. And so today, if you are uh, an elder, if you are a deacon, if you are a Sunday school teacher, if you are a community group leader, if you are a team ministry leader in this church, please understand that your devotion to God, that your holiness to God is going to have impacts upon other people, whether good or bad. I appreciate so much the ministry of the 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert McShane, who once wrote, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. I need to be a holy man. Now, there are people here who say, okay, well, I don't have any of those roles. Right? I'm not, I don't teach Sunday school. I don't lead a community group. So can I go home? Right? And so the answer is no. Okay? You cannot. Um, I think you, if you reflect a little bit, you'll actually realize that you, whether you have a position of leadership or not, you influence other people. Right? You may be a mom or a dad. You have influence, don't you? You may manage people at work. You have influence. You might, you might be an older sibling. You might have little brothers and sisters who look up to you. You have influence And therefore, you should be holy. There are three principles of holiness and leadership that I think these chapters set out. The first being that leaders are set apart. Look in verse 8 of chapter 20. He says, keep my statutes and do them. Excuse me, verse chapter 21. My apologies. Verse 8. It says, you shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of the Lord. He shall be, this is talking about two priests. He shall be holy to you. For I the, Lord, I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. You see, God says to these priests, I've sanctified you. Look over in verse 15. This is in reference to the high priest, for instance. He says that he might not profane his offspring among his people, for I, the Lord, who, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. You actually see that phrase, I sanctify them, five times in these chapters. Now, we use the word sanctify to describe how God progressively makes us changes our character, makes us more and more like him. That's not how he's using the word sanctified here. What he's saying is that these priests, these leaders, have been set apart. I am the Lord who has set you apart into this position. You have been set apart by me, therefore be different. And he gives them instructions on how to be different. And the first rules that you see are rules about their, their, their mourning the death of, of a loved one. Look in verse 1 again in chapter 21. It says... And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the son of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister. And so what God is saying is, listen, if you're a priest, you are forbidden from taking part in funeral ceremonies, except for your family. In this day, when a death occurred, they would... They would put ashes on themselves. They would, they would tear their clothes. They would put on um, sackcloth, clothes of mourning. And, and God says, if you're a priest, you can't do that unless it's a close relative. The reason is, is because they have a job to do. And they, they have to mediate between God and man. And therefore, they cannot become defiled, ritually impure, by coming into contact with a dead body. They would be unfit to do the job in which God has called them to do. Now, they're not prohibited from being sad. They're not prohibited from mourning. They're prohibited from becoming impure unless, in God's grace, he allows for an exception of their close family. But if you read about the high priest, which he begins to talk about in verse 10, he says the high priest, verses 10 and 11, he says you can't even bury your closest relative. If your dad dies and your mom dies, as a high priest, you cannot be part of that funeral 
ceremony. Right? And, and even more, he says in verse 5, that you, in, in these ideas of mourning, he says you cannot practice the pagan rites that, that for the dead. Look at what he says in verse 5. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beard, nor make any cuts on their body. He says you're going to mourn differently. I think Christians should mourn differently than the world, shouldn't we? I, I, what, how we mourn the death of a loved one, especially one who's in Christ, says a lot about what we believe. Perhaps you recently uh, heard about this man who was terminally ill. He would die any day. He's lying in bed and uh, he, he awoke to the aroma of his wife's chocolate chip cookies. And, and he thought, and he knew he was going to die, and he, he thought, okay, I don't have much time left. Wouldn't it be great just for one last taste? And so he, he actually rolled out of bed and crawled along the kitchen floor. And mustered all his strength, and he lifted himself up the counter to reach out and grab a cookie when his wife appeared and slapped his hand and said, don't eat those, they're for the funeral. All right, settle down. Christians mourn differently. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, Do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. If you are in Christ, even as we saw from John chapter 6, we have hope even through death. In fact, Scripture says, for the Christian to live is Christ. To die is what, church? Gain. We mourn differently. In addition to the rules about mourning, there are also rules about their family. That the high priest, or excuse me, priests could only marry women known for sexual virtue. Look in verse 7. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. So if you're a priest, you couldn't marry a prostitute. You couldn't marry a defiled woman, that is, a woman who has been promiscuous. You couldn't marry a divorcee. The high priest couldn't marry any of these, but you'll find out in verses 13 through 15, he actually had to marry a virgin. He could not marry a widow. And the the reality is, they had to know for sure that his offspring are his, because his offspring would rise, one of them would to the role of the high priest. And so he he couldn't even marry uh, um, a widow. His standard is even higher. You notice there's also a standard when it impacts your children. Look in verse 9 for the priests. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. He says that if your daughter is a prostitute and you're a priest, she not only profanes you, she not only profanes herself, excuse me, she profanes her father. Fair or not, we, we know, right, the world lays the blame of our children often at the doors of their parents. And this is a profaning to this man. Now when he says burned with fire, that is not burning at the stake. This is a reference to cremation. And we know this from other scriptures. Joshua 7, verse 25, for instance. Um, the, the punishment, by the way, for adultery at this time under this covenant was stoning to death. So I'm not sure that's any better. But what, once this, this, um, the prostitute was executed, God says she will not be given a proper burial. Her body will be cremated. And it's the idea that even her bones will not remain amongst God's people. There's a complete removal from the Lord. It's a sign of God's disfavor upon them. And I just want to, for a moment, just address this issue of cremation. I'm often asked about it. In fact, just recently, usually twice a year, people want to talk about cremation. And I, I want to let you know that as far as I understand Scripture, I see no commands against cremation. Cremation is not, as far as I understand, sinful. Many people may have a reason to um, cremate, uh, ask to be cremated. But I do believe it is helpful to know that both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, burial was always seen as an honor to the dead. And it, it was a symbolic reminder of two things. One, the goodness of the body as we treat the body properly. 
and to the hope of the resurrection. Now that's symbolism. But I think symbolism is important. I think Leviticus is teaching us that. I'd also suggest to you or tell you that cremation is historically a pagan practice or a sign of God's judgment. And we have no historical record of any Christian ever being cremated until about 150 years ago when that practice began. All I'm suggesting to you is I want to encourage you as you think perhaps about what your family will do with your remains that you think deeply and don't simply make a snap decision on that. And what we see here about these leaders and these rules is that there is a cost to leadership. You see that there's a cost on their family. Right? What, you, what are you permitted to do when one dies? Is who you're allowed to marry. There's an impact upon your children. Leadership will cost you. There, there is a danger today um, and, and amongst pastors, amongst leaders, that, that we will neglect our family in pursuit of ministry or in pursuit of business. And many of you are kind to help me with that and to warn me of that danger, and I appreciate that. But let me suggest to you that there is another danger on the opposite end of the spectrum. And that is, I will give myself to leadership as long as it doesn't cost me anything. As long as it doesn't cost my family anything. Or as long as it's not a burden upon me. Right? And there are pastors today, and and this is very in vogue, where they say, my family trumps all obligations. And so I have, a kid has a sporting event. I have a church uh, meeting. Well, my family comes first. So I'm going to have to miss the meeting. And we have this is, these family traditions, and we do this as a family, and this is how our family runs. And so we, we, we focus completely on the family, and all ministry has to come and fit in with what remains. And we say, I'll serve the church, I'll lead the church, but it better not cost me much. And I want you to see that these men, to lead, there was a cost upon them. There was a cost. Uh, they couldn't mourn like the rest, right? They're, when their children sin in public, it was a big deal. There's a cost upon their children. God has said, I've set you apart, right? In verse 6, he tells us why. They shall be holy to the Lord and not profane the name of the Lord, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. God says they are entrusted with holy things. They are entrusted with my offerings. And by the way, I cannot think of a much a greater honor than what I get to do. And, and those of you who teach God's Word, do you understand the honor that it is, the privilege that it is, that God has entrusted you to take His people and impart His truth to them? Right? That is an honor. But there is cost to that. And, and I believe, I've been doing this for 19 years now, and I'll just tell you from experience, from my own, and those whom I talk to, I think Satan comes after the leaders with greater urgency and attention. Because what? You know, he could get 100 people to fail, but if, man, if we could get a leader to fail, you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Right? If you lead, there is a cost God has set you apart. Secondly, leaders are an example of righteousness. Look in verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. Verse 18. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or a man with a defect in his sight or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near the altar to offer the Lord's food offering since he has a blemish. We read this and if <laughs> we're immediately, I think, a little uncomfortable with this passage. This kind of seems like there's discrimination against the physically disabled. And so if you think that's what God's teaching, let me just put a couple truths in your mind. Number one, they could still, the disabled could still serve as priests. They simply could not offer the sacrifices. 
So priests taught, priests circumcised, priests made rulings on cleanliness. There were other jobs to do. These disabled priests could perform those rules, but they could not present the sacrifices to the Lord. The second truth I want to put in your heart is that according to God, the disabled are always to be cared for. They are not to be cast aside. They're not to be neglected. Like many in the ancient Near East culture, that the infirm, the poor, the disabled will be cast aside. We have a team of 10 people in Ghana right now. You go to Ghana and in villages, if a child is born with a severe physical uh, disability, often that child is taken out into the jungle and left in the bush and left there to die. That happens today, right now. This ha- has happened by, um, from, from uh, throughout time. It continues to happen today. And yet the Bible comes along and says, no, wait a second. The poor, the infirm, the disabled are to be cared for. So we get to Leviticus 19, for instance, and you'll find special laws on how to treat the deaf and the blind well. We have this beautiful picture, remember King David welcoming disabled Mephibosheth to his table as God teaches us that the disabled, whether physically disabled or spiritually disabled, have a place with him in his presence. And then Jesus shows up and it's even more emphasized. Who's Jesus constantly ministering to but the lame and the blind and the deaf and the mute showing compassion upon the disabled. And then he teaches us, he says, when you have a feast, don't invite the wealthy. Go out into the the highways and the byways and the bushes and the shrubs and and find the lame, and find the crippled, and find the blind, and bring them in, teaching us how God has accepted us who are outcasts, as well as teaching us to care for those who are disabled. Yet we come to Leviticus 21, and we see if you have these disabilities, you cannot offer, and you're a priest, you cannot offer the sacrifices. And all this is, is not about their worth. It's about symbolism. That he wanted perfect priests to mirror the unblemished sacrifices, right? Perfect priests making perfect sacrifices. And so you actually have 12 blemishes that disqualify a priest from offering a sacrifice. If you look over in chapter 22, verses 17 and on, maybe your little heading, we don't have time to read that, acceptable offerings, you will find how God uh, explains what an, an acceptable offering is, and he will list 12 unacceptable blemishes on sacrifices. And the blemishes on the sacrifices are very similar to the the blemishes on these priests that would disqualify them from offering the sacrifice. And so he wanted unblemished priests for the same reason he wanted unblemished sacrifices, to show those Right? Those who are sacrificing and those that were sacrificed are perfect. And it points us, doesn't it, to a perfect sacrifice who is coming and a perfect priest in perfection, his holiness will make up for what we lack. But at the same time, it teaches us that that physical wholeness, at least in this covenant, was a symbolic picture of a moral wholeness. That, that the leaders are to be models of righteousness. And we see this taught to us in the New Covenant. That the Scripture tells us in the New Testament that, that if you are to be a leader, you have to meet these qualifications. And the qualifications are never formal education or leadership skills. The qualifications are all about your holiness. And so if you are a leader, if you're an elder, for instance, you're told you have to be generous and humble and devoted to your wife and your children. You have to be self-controlled, upright, and holy. If you're a deacon, you're told you need to be dignified and not double-tongued, and not a slanderer. You need to be a faithful man of good reputation. And the reason is that God wants to set an example before his people, that we should be able to take a young believer and bring him into the home of a Sunday school teacher or a community group leader and say, watch how he talks to his wife, see the vision that overshadows his home, look how he affirms his children, listen to him pray, watch him witness, watch him repent, and he will be a model of righteousness to you. Right? This is what God is establishing. Now, there was, there, listen, there is a danger here. And I think this danger is mostly past, but it's still kind of hanging on, right? And the danger is, if you're a pastor or a leader, you, right, you can't be normal. I, I, don't know if, I don't know if anybody has seen this. Like a, like a pastor, you can't wear, if you're a pastor, you can't wear a ball cap or flip-flops, you know, on your day off. It's just not pastoral, okay? And let me just, let me just tell you, that's weird, okay? Um, and it's, okay, that's not biblical, but... We've, we've reacted to that. 
And I, and I think we've gone too far. Because there's another danger that we want pastors and leaders just like everyone else. Right? We want our leaders to have all the same issues that we have and all the same struggles that we have. Right? Because if they're too holy and too devoted to Jesus, we just can't relate to them very well. And so we want, we want pastors who are real and pastors who are cool. Right? We, want, we want leaders just as messed up as the rest. Right? That's a leader we can relate to. And I see this all the time in the church. And let me suggest to you, to, to want a leader or a pastor, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, to want someone leading you who is no more committed to Christ and His holiness than the rest of the people is just simply stupid. Okay? In fact, it, it, it's unwise, or to use a biblical phrase, it's unbiblical. We relate to leaders because they've experienced the same struggle that we have, but they can lead because they have overcome them. And they are farther along than the rest of us, and they show us how. That's how they lead us. And God says leaders are to be an example of righteousness. The third truth that we learn about leaders here in these chapters is that leaders are to protect their purity. Look over in chapter 22 and verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Now the holy things that he's referring to is food. right? You know the priests would get their food from the offerings. We've seen this already. And God says if you're ritually unclean, you can't eat the food. And then if you read on in chapter 22, he kind of reviews all the ritual uncleanliness. You know, if you touch a corpse, if you, if you uh, eat an unclean animal, if you have a skin disease, if you, all the bodily discharges that we've already considered. And what, we learn, what we're learning about is that God is serious about purity. Look in verse 9. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And this, I, I want you to see the seriousness of this verse. He says they, they bear their sin. It's a picture of carrying your iniquities as you approach God unclean in your filth, right? And, and God says you, you need to protect your purity. God is serious about it, just as we see in the New Testament. And Paul writes to Timothy, who's getting ready to lead, pastor the church of Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, listen, watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's 1 Timothy 4.16. It seems to me the summary of Christian leadership. Be careful with what you teach and be careful with how you live. And that's what Leviticus, Leviticus is helping us understand to be careful how we live. And I think us Northern Virginians, we're careful about many things. We're careful about our finance. We're, we're careful about what we eat. We're careful about our decorations in our home or our handicap in our golf game. But are we careful about our holiness? Our purity. Robert McShane, that great pastor, heard of a friend that was traveling, a pastor friend traveling to Germany. And his pastor friend was going to live in Germany for a while to, in order to learn German so that he could read the German theologians and become a more serious theologian to pastor his church. And McShane wrote his friend a letter saying, I know you will apply hard to German, but do not forget the inner man. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp and every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. If you lead, people need your holiness. They need it more than your skills. They need it more than your talents. Your children need your holiness, your purity, more than your money, more than toys, more than summer vacation. 
They need to observe their parents devoted to God. They need to have leaders serious about their purity. Are you, my friends, a sharp and polished sword in the hand of God? Or have you become a dull and blunt object? I think it's very easy to get lazy here. In fact, you read on in chapter 22 and there's this dialogue about who's allowed to eat from the priest's family from the holy things. Can, can your daughter who gets married come and eat? Can you, you guests, can they come and eat? And, and God, God, I think the, the idea is that it's kinda, it will be very easy to get lazy about this and say, well, you're here, you're a guest. You know, I know you're not supposed to eat this food, but eat it anyways. You know, you're in my home, or daughter comes home, and okay, yeah, you could eat this food, right? And it's very easy to just get lax about it. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. And I think this is the same way. It's very easy for us to get lazy about our souls and about our holiness and about our purity. And we start off with this great ambition and earnestness and devotion to the Lord. And yet we begin to wane and wane as the years go by. Some people have called this the baby book effect. Remember when you had your first child and you got that baby book? And you, you, know, you clip the hair and put it in the baby book. And there's an eyelash in the baby book. And, and, and you write in the diary, you know, baby pooped all over herself. It's so cute and wonderful, right? And you're just, everything's wonderful. And then you get the second baby book. And maybe you put a couple pictures in there. And the third baby book, maybe you write their name on it. And the fourth baby book, right, never gets out of the package. My wife is scowling at me right now. She knows this to be true. The fifth, you get, you're lucky enough to have five, a fifth child. You don't even buy the crazy baby books, right? And you just get, get you know, the devotion, the excitement you once had. It's easy, isn't it, to kind of lose that earnestness or lose that zeal. I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, do not profane the Lord. Live for His fame and His glory. Your lives impact those around you. I've been so blessed by the writings of the 17th century Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter, who wrote most of pastors, and if I could just quote a little of him, perhaps um, you might find application to yourself as well. Preach to yourselves the sermons which you study before you preach them to others. If you did this for your own sakes, it would not be a lost labor. You would do it for the sake of the church. When your minds are in a holy, heavenly frame, your people are likely to partake of the fruits of it. When your prayers and praises and doctrines are sweet to you, it will be heavenly to them. They will feel when you have been much with God. Your community group will feel when you have been much with God. Your Sunday school class will feel when you have been much with God. Your family, your children will feel when you have been much with God. Baxter writes, we are the nurses of Christ's little ones. If we forbear taking food ourselves, we shall famish them. If we let our love decline, we are not like to raise up theirs. If we abate our holy care and fear, it will appear in our preaching. Whereas if we abound in faith and love and zeal, how would it overflow to the refreshing of others? O brethren, watch therefore over your own hearts. Keep out lusts and passions and worldly inclinations. Keep up the life of faith and love and zeal. Above all, he writes, be much in secret prayer and meditation. From there you fetch heavenly fire that must kindle our sacrifices. Remember, you cannot decline and neglect your duty to your own hurt alone. Many will be losers by it as well as you. For your people's sake, for your family's sake, for your church's sake, He writes, therefore, look to your own hearts. How do you live for God? How do you embrace the holiness in which he calls us to? Do not profane his name, but live as he has instructed and worship as he has as well. We'll be quick as we consider now holiness and worship from Leviticus chapter 17. Simply two truths I want to share with you. The first being... That we worship God alone. As you consider Leviticus 17, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. 
If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. God says, if you kill an animal in this day, you want to eat maybe one of your sheep? You want to eat a cow? He says, you first have to bring it to the tabernacle and slaughter it there. You, you cannot slaughter in your fields. You cannot slaughter it whenever and wherever you want. You first have to present it, verse 5, as a peace offering, sometimes called a fellowship offering to the Lord. This, by the way, is only temporary. Deuteronomy 12 tells us once they move into the promised land, they're too spread out to do this. You notice verse 4 says the penalty is severe. Right? They'll be cut off from the people, he says. This is serious to the Lord. This even applies to the immigrant who's living amongst them, according to verse 8 and 9. So why? why? Why do you have to bring the animal to the Lord? Why can't you sacrifice it in the field? Or, what? excuse me, kill it in the field? Well, we're told in verse 7, somewhat of a startling verse. It says, So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. I find this verse shocking to think about after all that God has done for Israel. The redemption out of Egypt, the providing for them in the wilderness. That After the golden calf incident, it seems like they're still worshiping false gods. See, goat demons here, it's from this verse from what I understand, that we uh, originally uh, came up with the idea to present the devil as a goat-like figure. Now, I don't understand this, to be perfectly honest. I used to have goats, and uh, I never a single time ever was tempted to worship them, right? Uh, <laughs> Shoot them all, yes, many times, especially when they find their way in the house somehow. But, um, but it, what God is trying to do is trying to prevent the sacrifices uh, of, of animals to these false gods. And in order to do that, he says, okay, if you, listen, if you're just going to kill anything, you need to bring it to me. You need to have a priest supervising this. See, this is a continual problem for Israel uh, right? these, these, of course, these are, you know, monotheism was, was exclusive to Israel, by the way. All the pagans around them had many, many gods. And this was a constant temptation to Israel as well, that they would give themselves to other gods. And you keep reading the Bible and you'll find out just within years of this, they'll be worshiping Baal. In Deuteronomy 32, we read they, sacrifice, they were sacrificing to demons. It's a continual problem for them to sacrifice to other gods. And I think, by the way, it's a continual problem for us. Right now, you don't sacrifice to goat demons. That's not your idol. That's theirs. Ours might be materialism. And we just want more and more and more, and we're never content with what we have. We just have to have more. And if it's not materialism, maybe it's success, or maybe it's status, or pleasure, or the perfect family, or the perfect body. And we just put these things as our, our ultimate goal in our life. These are, these are the goats in our lives. The Jews, by the way, they still believed in the Lord, but they would sacrifice to these other gods, just kind of cover their their bases, right? And I think we do this. Maybe our idolatry is seen in that we neglect God and His Word. Maybe I think about my own heart and my continual struggle, that, that beginning my day with the Lord in prayer. I mean, I don't know if you're anything like that, but how, how often do you think that I just don't have time to pray today? I mean, my to-do list is too long, and I got this to do, and I got this to do, and, and we begin to prioritize these, these goat demons of paying bills, and cleaning house, and writing sermons, and watching TV, and, and we, we don't come to the Lord, and we say, I don't need you to speak to me today. I don't need to hear from you. I don't need to pray to you today. I, I don't need your help in temptation today. I got it under control. I don't need your help in changing people's hearts today. I could do that on my own, and, and I'll tell you, it's unbelief. Lord, I'm too busy today. My kids need to get to practice today. The church needs a sermon on Sunday, and I don't have time. And I'm telling you, that's idolatry. This is the idolatry of self. I'm good enough. And God says, no. You will worship me alone. Exclusively. God helps us understand that he alone is to have our allegiance. One way to understand this, Kevin DeYoung, uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung has helped me uh, in, in this illustration. He says, God is not like one of your children. You know, you have, you have children, you have your first child, and, and you're, you love that child, and the second child comes, and your love is not now not divided in half, right? It's not like, okay, the kids are competing for my love. You love them both, right? And it's not like you have less love for the first now that a second has come. Well, God's not like that. 
God is not like, okay, I have this, I love this, and I have this, I love this, and I have God, and I love this, and I love you all equally. No, God's like your spouse. Right? You, you have a spouse, and that relationship is exclusive. You can't say to your spouse, I'll give you 166 hours a week of devotion. I just want two hours for this other person. Right? That that's the, goes against the very nature of the relationship. See, God is a husband. And, and, and we, we come to the Lord, and when we do, we pledge that we will follow him and forsake all other gods. That's why, notice how he calls idolatry. What does he call it? Usually adultery, but he even uses a stronger word here in verse 7. He uses the word whore. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? I don't even like saying it. Um, it is a correct translation from what I understand. It is a, God chose a very vulgar word here to explain that when we put other things in his place, we are doing something sick, something vulgar, something profane. And he gives us these rules. He goes on to give us rules about um, animals outside your herd. For instance, what if you go hunting? Do you still have to bring that to the tabernacle? That's verses 13 through 14. This would be hard to chase a gazelle into the tabernacle, right? And so God says, you can kill it out in the field, but you have to drain its blood there and cover it with dirt. He says, what if you find a dead animal and you can't drain that animal's blood because it's dead? Maybe it was killed by another animal. God says, you can eat it, but you become ritually impure and you do a number of ceremonies to reestablish that. You notice all these rules about blood? I mean, we see this over and over again. In fact, I think he's very emphatic in verse 10 when he says, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. I will cut him off from among his people. In case you didn't get that, look in verse 12. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among the dead. You see that God is personally opposed to this. He says not only that you, he's no longer saying you'll be cut off. He says there in verse 10, I will set my face against that person. That the Lord has his personal opposition to those who consume blood. And we have, this is not the first time we talked about blood in Leviticus, is it? We've, we've seen it over and over and over again. We talked about childbirth and menstruation and hemorrhaging and all the blood of the sacrifices. We, we talk a lot about blood. And in case you didn't know, to the rest of the world, that's weird. They don't, they don't talk about blood like you and I do. Right? We think, they think blood is bad. We were on vacation as a family just a little while ago, a couple weeks ago, and my, all 12 of the Karn cousins were at my parents' lake house and jumping off the dock, and my oldest son was doing these backflips in midair, his, his knee connected with his lip, sending his bottom tooth into his lip out the other side. Right? And he came to me, and there was blood everywhere. Right? And I said, where's your mother? Right? <laughs> 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 this, this is above my pay grade, right? <laughs> this, is, this is serious, right? We use phrases like covered in blood. I mean, that's bad. But in the church, we talk about blood all the time. We, we sing songs about blood. We have an interest in the Savior's blood. There's power in the blood. There's a fountain filled with blood. Right? And we, we even amen it. Right? We, we don't bat an eye. We celebrate blood, right? We rejoice in it. So why does God say, listen, why are all these rules about blood? Why, why prohibit it from eating blood? Look in verse 11. I think this is perhaps the most important verse in all of Leviticus. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for life. He says you do not eat blood, because through blood, atonement has been made. I have given you the blood to make atonement. It makes atonement for your souls. This is the most explicit verse in all of the kiss, perhaps all of the Old Testament, about why all this blood and sacrifice. Why sprinkle the blood on the veil? Why pour the blood at the base of the altar? Why smear it on the horns of the altar of incense? Why sprinkle it on the mercy seat? It's not because the blood is magical. It represents the life of another. You see that in verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when you have blood, it, it's showing us that a life has been given. It is a picture of God accepting the life of an animal in the place of the worshiper, so that their sins can be atoned for. I've given it you, he says, to make atonement for your souls. This is the idea of substitution. 
that some, some other life is taken so that our life can be spared. Now, what I love about this, many things I love about this verse, I love this little phrase there in verse 11. He says, I have given it for you. God says, I gave this to you. And I want you to understand that God in his mercy, in other words, has made forgiveness possible. Right? We have no de- right to demand that he forgive us, no right to demand his grace and mercy. He says, I've given it to you. And in, o- in other words, if they think, okay, well, we've sinned, but we're bringing a sacrifice to God, so we are earning his forgiveness, God says, no, I'm the one who gave this to you. I gave this whole system to you. I've made a way for this to happen. I even gave you the animal for which you are bringing to me. In mercy, he provides a way for forgiveness. And so please do not understand that I think many people kind of misinterpret Scripture, especially in our world, that we're just trying to bribe this angry God. We're trying to placate him, right, with this animal. No, God says, this is my gift to you. It's not your gift to me. He does this. He gives us this because he loves us. His love is demonstrating the fact that he's made a way for us to be atoned with him, and I think his love is supremely seen in the fact that he has given us, as we've considered even earlier in our service, Christ, his son, to die for us. And so let me say in just a moment or two, lastly, that we worship God alone because he has died, he alone has died for sin and sinners. And God says, I've given my son to make atonement for your souls. I want you to understand that because Jesus died, sometimes we think this, because we, we say, well, Jesus died for me, therefore God loves me. That's not true. Maybe it's true in some way, but that's not the main idea. God doesn't love you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because God loves you. So Jesus is not twisting the Father's arm behind his back and say, okay, I know you don't like them and you're real angry with them, but you have to forgive them because I've, I've died for you. No, the Bible says that for God so loved the world. Because God loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we don't earn his love by bringing a sacrifice. They didn't earn his love by bringing a sacrifice. They already had it. To to kind of illustrate this, God is, is not kind of like an annoyed, petty boyfriend and his people are like the dutiful girlfriend and saying, well, what if I do this? Will you love me now? Or what if I do this? What if, what if I do this? Will you love me now? Am I good enough now? No, you're not good enough. What if I obey this rule? What if I do this? Am I good enough now? No, you're not good enough. That is not this, that's not what's happening here. God is the faithful husband, and we are all the, the adulterer, or to use the biblical phrase, we are the whore, and God in his grace, he buys us back to himself because he loves us. We are not the dutiful one. We are the adulterer. And God is not the fickle boyfriend. He is the merciful husband. And in great cost to himself, he gives his own son as a substitute. He spills his lifeblood in order to redeem us. And in doing so, he shows you, friends, doesn't he show you how sinful we truly are? The cross tells us that we are worse than we ever imagined. We cannot find forgiveness in the death of an animal or even the death of another person. It requires the death, only the blood of the Son of God to pay for our sin. And once it puts you down in the dirt, the cross then elevates you higher than you ever thought imagined. Because it tells you, not only are you more sinful than you ever imagined, you are more loved than you ever dreamed. Because if the measure of love is the degree to to what it gives, what can God give us more than Christ? Knowing all our waywardness, knowing all our rebellion, all our uncleanness, he puts his son to death and his blood now is the red carpet upon which sinful people like you and I come into the presence of a holy God because he loves us. Do you love him? I hope you do. Maybe there are some here that do not. The Bible says that you will be accepted by God if you will place your faith in him. Scripture announces that as we've already considered, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what? Believes. It's not your sacrifice, it's not your work, it's simply by belief that you could put your faith in him and receive the salvation in which he offers. For our Christian brothers and sisters, in light of these truths, in light of the gift, in light of our redemption, let us not profane the name of our holy God. Let us repent of sin, repent of laziness, repent of idolatry, 
The book of Hebrews says if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then we have profaned the blood of the covenant. Be holy, for your Lord God is holy. As the Scripture teaches us, so shall you keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among my people. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of bondage to be your God. I am the Lord. Our Father in heaven, you are our Lord, and you are holy. Help us to be like you. Show us the sin from which we must turn. Show us the idols that we continue to worship. We ask that you and your kindness will give us an abounding and triumphant desire to more faithfully mirror the God who has redeemed us through the death of his son. Let us now understand you to be the holy God that you are and believe and embrace your vision for our lives that we would be holy like our God is holy. Do this for our great gain and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.